Hey guys, welcome to episode number 27 of the Rugby Strength Coach Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to episode number 27 of the Rugby Strength Coach Podcast. This is Keir from Rugby Strength Coach. In today's episode, we've got a first. It's our first world record holder. Um, this is Travis Mash. He's an extremely accomplished athlete in multiple sports. Started out as a college football player, American football, uh, then transitioned to Olympic lifting before making the move to powerlifting, where he is most well known for breaking Ed Cohen's long-standing 220-pound division world record over 10 times body weight in competition in the squat, bench, and deadlift. Since then, he made a switch to elite-level bobsledding, trying out for the US team for the Olympics, and he's also moved back to Olympic lifting both as an athlete and as a coach. Uh, he's now the owner and head coach of Mash Mafia Barbell Club in uh, his home state of North Carolina. So obviously, Travis has got a, a ton of experience on what it takes to get as big, strong, explosive, uh, fast, and powerful as possible. And in this episode, we, we talk about a bunch of stuff, including his own career, uh, the lessons that he learned along the way, uh, particularly in what the process was to overcome plateaus and, and break the world record that he did about 10 years ago. We also talked about what it takes to be an elite athlete, both physically and mentally, uh, how he goes about coaching the Olympic lifts with his own athletes. Um, you know, as I've said multiple times on, on the podcast and in my own uh, writings on the blog, I don't use them in my own coaching, but the fact is that a lot of people out there do like to use them. And uh, if you want to pass things like the UKSCA and the ASCA assessments as a coach, uh, it, it's pretty much a fact that you have to be able to, to coach them. So we dive into that a little bit. And then, um, you know, even though I'm not uh, an advocate of them in, in coaching for, for rugby players, I'm still a, a massive fan of Olympic lifting. So we talk a little bit about what's wrong with weightlifting in the West and uh, how we're going to fix it and how his young athletes and, and others like them are going to start to try ho hopefully win medals for the USA and other countries. So if you like this content, uh, you want to get your hands on more of it, especially if you're a strength and conditioning coach, make sure you check out the Rugby Strength Coach community at rugbystrengthcoach.com slash members. Over there, you're going to be able to find uh, monthly webinar presentations from elite level strength and conditioning coaches on many, many different topics that are going to help you in your work as a coach. You're also going to find a discussion forum where you can meet and talk to strength coaches from all over the world at all levels of the game uh, about all topics of strength and conditioning so you can add some strings to your bow. Also, if you're an up-and-coming coach, you're going to get access to a lot of career development resources. You'll be able to ask questions and get advice from people who've been there, done it, worn the t-shirt, and hopefully accelerate your own career development. So if you want to check that out, it's rugbystrengthcoach.com slash members. If you go to the checkout and enter the, trial, uh, enter the code TRIAL, uh, you'll be able to try it out for £1 for a day. If you like it, keep it. If you don't, send it right back. Uh, but for now, sit back and uh, enjoy this episode with Travis. Thanks very much. Travis, how's it going? Doing well. How are you? I'm good. Um, excellent. And I have to say, today I think you're the first world record holder we've had in the podcast. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm still honored. <laughs> <laughs> so, for people who are not familiar with you, can you give them a little bit of a breakdown about who you are, what you've done as a coach and as an athlete? Um, I'll try to keep it short, but when you're 43, that's a lot of stuff. It's <laughs> a lot of stuff. But... Um, uh, I guess my, I started my athletic career uh, playing college football, American football, and uh, I played at Appalachian State University. Um, some people might know us because we beat 
University of Michigan, you know, a few years ago. So that was pretty cool. But after that, um, I did one year of, of powerlifting uh, right after college football and, and did pretty well and won the junior nationals that year and went to the junior worlds and um, took a silver medal. That was a long, that was like 1996. So that was a long time ago. But then after that, um, when college was over, that was like my senior year in college. But when college was over, I went straight to Colorado Springs, um, mainly because my strength coach had told me about, uh, you know, Olympic weightlifting. You know, we used it even uh, in the 90s. And he said that, you know, probably my best bet would be, if I wanted to continue to be an athlete, would be, you know, weightlifting. So I drove, um, gosh, man, this is a crazy story. But when I graduated, I had 200 American dollars, um, and I just took a, took a chance. Drove to Colorado Springs, which is like, man, it, it's a, over a 1,000 miles from where I'm from. And so drove there, yeah, drove there in my car um, with everything I owned in my car and uh, found that I already had um, researched and found out that there was a coach, Wes Barnett, who was a two-time Olympian um, that coached on the side. And so I found him. Um, I actually drove straight to him, to the gym that he coached at, and asked him if he would be my coach. He said yes. And then at that moment, he was coaching the owner of the gym, and the owner was like, you know, where are you going to work? And I'm like, I'm not sure. And he's like, do you want to work here? And I'm like, absolutely. And so, and then on my way from there to my car, there was a, a trainer. Uh, his name was Ryan Mitchell, and he was like, where are you going to live? I'm like, I don't know. He's like, well, would you want to live with me? I'm like, sure. So within within one hour, I had my coach, a job, and a place to live. So wow. it was kind of, yeah. And so started doing, you know, competing in weightlifting. It went really well. And within about two years, uh, I was training at the Olympic Training Center. But then, um, as fate would have it, my, my dad was diagnosed with terminal cancer. So... You know, I had the, you know, I was struck with the options of do I stay there and, you know, my dad dies, I don't see him, or do I go home? And so I moved home because, you know, I love my dad and I wanted to be with him. And um, at the time, there wasn't a CrossFit on every corner, so there was no chance really to do uh, weightlifting. There just wasn't a lot of places who had bumper plates. And where I'm from, there was none. So that's when I started powerlifting. Um, and then, uh, that, that took off, though. It went really well. In 2001, I competed in my first, you know, pro powerlifting competition and um, took um, bronze on, in that one, actually. Tied uh, the, this guy named Chuck Vogelpool, who's very famous, but he went on body weight. But then um, by 2004, I broke the all-time, you know, three years later, I broke the all-time world record. It was Ed Cohn's world record. And so um, it was 20. Yeah, yeah, it was over ten times because it yeah. was, yeah, it was because um, I totaled twenty four ten at that time. Oh, like and then really, yeah, almost eleven, I guess, because a hundred kilos, yeah, yeah, two twenty times, yeah, almost eleven, not quite eleven. So, um, yeah, and then did that, and then then you know the whole time I I coached athletes on the side, and, and after powerlifting. Um, that was my main focus is just coaching other people, mainly strength and conditioning. But, you know, now it's turned into coaching weightlifting, seems like, Olympic weightlifting. 
So, what was the experience like at the Olympic Training Center? Were you a full-time athlete or, or still part-time? Yeah. No, it's full-time. And so, uh, well, I mean, I did I still, like, every, every amateur athlete still, you know, has to do something. That, well, especially back then. We did work, so I, I still worked, you know, on the side. I, I coached athletes on the side and uh, worked at the same gym that that I met, you know, Wes Barnett. And so, um, but yeah, I still still was working. It was it was a great experience, you know. Uh, having gosh, at that time it was way. I think weightlifting, believe it or not, was probably better in America back then. In that same gym, we had let's see, we had Wes Barnett. Pete Kelly, these are all Olympians I'm mentioning. Um, uh, Pete Kelly, Tom Goff, uh, Timmy McRae, uh, Tara Knott, who was a gold medalist. Um, I'm probably forgetting somebody. It was, um, was that during were, um, Shane Hammond's time as well? Oh, yeah, Shane Hammond's. Yeah, yeah, yes. And Shane Hammond's and I almost come at the same time from powerlifting, but he was a little bit before me. And, he, you know, he obviously stuck with it and did better than I did, but. Um, yeah, yeah. Cause, did do you think? Would you say you came to the Olympic lifting quite late in in your career? I mean, you know, um, definitely later, you know, than what's optimal. You know, the, a lot of kids, you know, a lot of people like Wes have been doing it since he was a kid because you know he was he happened to be um, from one of the few places in America who taught it early on, and so uh, you know, back then it was the luck of the luck of the draw. If you were from like one of like five spots in America, then you you know you had a big advantage. And so. what what did you have to do as an athlete to get yourself up to speed? Because you know I've read, I think it was an interview with with Shane where he talked about you know he didn't do anything more than a broomstick for like three months until they said you know you're ready. Yeah, you know uh, I feel like like I moved a little faster just because I I had already done it in college. You know I'd already done. You know, clean and jerks in college, and we had started learning the snatch a little bit. And um, my my strength coach was Mike Kent, who's now at University of Florida. And he was really good. So um, you know, it wasn't the typical you know strength conditioning bad technique, and he was pretty good. So like, I'd already learned a decent base, you know. So I was a little, I got to move a little faster than than Shane, but um, however, he did a lot better, you know. But, I mean, I just didn't have the time he did. You know, he got cut short, so who knows what would happen. I'd like to think that, you know, I would have done as well, but who knows, you know? Yeah, well, I was uh, I was at a seminar in Sydney um, a couple of years ago with uh, Chad Wesley Smith, and he, he alluded to your, your natural ability. I think, is it right, you're five foot seven, you can dunk a basketball. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, he yeah. talked about me? <laughs> yeah, he said... Yeah, yeah. I think it was in relation to something like speed work, and uh, he said, well, you know, Travis Mash says that you know speed work never really worked for him in terms of developing strength. But he said, when yeah. you're five foot seven, you can dunk a basketball. You're probably explosive enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, I just I would do it just because I, you know, you know, Louis Simmons said to do it, but it would always end up maximal effort. <laughs> yeah. I would just I would do the you know the um, prescribed amounts, but then I would just keep going. But um, yeah. yeah. So we don't we don't do a lot of dynamic effort um, at our gym. I think I think um, you know by by working you know maximal quite often you know you're gonna get those you know type two um, B and type two A fibers anyway. Yeah. So just because you know when you go to a max 
you know, those fibers are firing, even though the bar, I mean, it's trying to go as fast as it can. Yeah. So they're still firing, and you're still going to be explosive. And presumably, if you're moving those warm-ups with maximum intent as well, you're, you're training yeah. at, low, at high velocities anyway. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we're always, you know, you're always focused on compensatory acceleration. So if you're always focused on that, then you're getting your speed work, you know, as you warm up, like you say. Mm. Now, you kind of mentioned CrossFit already, and one of the like theories that I have about CrossFit in in the states is that it's it's brought a huge amount of people to um, Olympic weightlifting, and I think there are a couple of members on the USA team that started out in CrossFit and then decided, oh, actually, I'm going to focus on Olympic lifting now. Do you think that uh, culture and the popularity of the sport is one of the reasons that? Uh, Olympic lifting in the West has struggled in previous years and with CrossFit becoming popular whatever else you want to say about it that may actually mean good things for Olympic success in the future because I think about someone like CJ Cummings he's on your YouTube channel I follow him on Instagram you've got a teenager who you know clean jerks 170 kilos which is crazy crazy Um, I think uh, I think the CrossFit is definitely you know helping you know as far as like the popularity and, and the notoriety, but you know it's it's bringing the athletes once again a little bit too late. You know at times, you know we it has brought us Maddie Rogers, who's good, and um, in our lifetime will definitely make an Olympic team. But like you know, we do need to you know, identify athletes younger, and so. Um, but what it does do is now people understand the sport, so it's cool. So now when you go to a parent and say, "Hey, you are you know you're 11 year old." could potentially be an Olympian someday, you know, they start to understand because CrossFit now has introduced the world to snatch cleaning jerk. And so, um, whereas when I was growing up, they had no idea what that, you know, what those lifts were yeah. or anything else. So it's definitely, it's definitely helped. And it's, it's um, brought enough interest to the sport to where, you know, there's, ch- there's a chance to maybe, you know, make financial gains too. You know, like a lot of people, can uh, you know write programs or can you know put up YouTube channels and do you know have a an outlet to financial gains you know so it's it's a it's a definitely definitely whether it's powerlifting weightlifting or strength conditioning like CrossFit has definitely brought more awareness to the whole entire world so yeah and yeah. notoriety <laughs> yeah right for another day now. Um, yeah. You know, I, I mentioned to you in an email where we where we organised this podcast that I've actually been aware of you for you know ten plus years, um, and first became aware of you through Elite FTS, which is obviously Dave Tate's website, and I can trace back right. meeting a lot of people to that website. And I remember reading, I think it was it was probably around ten years ago that you were going to make that transition from powerlifting into uh, two different ventures. One was uh, bobsled, and the other was back into Olympic weightlifting. Now. How did the bobsled thing come around, and, and what was that experience like? I was recruited to bobsled a long time ago when I was uh, doing weightlifting. You know, so it was I'd already been introduced, and even uh, you know, I was already familiar with bobsled because you know I considered there was a recruiter for bobsled out of Idaho Falls, Idaho, and uh, I met him, and you know he did these you know um, a series of tests. A vertical leap. Uh, I'm going to do a 15 meter sprint, uh, 30 meter sprint. 
a flying 30 meter sprint and a 45 meter sprint, which he tested all. And you know, what you do is you run a 60 meter and he would test all the, you know, he'd set up multiple timers mm -hmm. and, uh, he, he did some kind of like, you know, throw, there's like a ball throw this long time ago. But so like, I don't, I was already familiar and already was digging bobsled. And so, um, yeah, I started training for both again. And then, I broke, I mean, uh, this is kind of crazy, but uh, I fractured some vertebrae in the cervical spine while I wanted rafting. And so it really ended, it really ended my career, you know, because, um, you know, it caused a lot of damage and it took me a long time to rehab it. And so, and I still, you know, the radial nerve on my left side is not the same. And so, anyway. How did, that, um, was it quite a, a difference or quite a learning curve to get into that? Or is it literally just a case of you need to be as big, strong, and explosive as possible and push? You need to be fast too, though. So it's a really big combination. You know, like, I mean, speed is probably uh, a little bit more important than even being big and explosive because, uh, you know, like when you're running downhill on ice, I mean, you, you're, your legs have to turn over pretty quickly. And so... So, like, uh, being able to have really good techniques in sprinting is super important. And so, um, you know, I had a guy, um, William Bradley, you know, who worked with me on, on speed. So it was really good for my strength conditioning career, too, because um, I learned a lot. A lot of things I've ever used on other athletes, I'd already used on myself. And so a lot of the things I learned from William, you know, I took on to teach my athletes, but um, – yeah, Bob said, man, you got to be fast, really fast. And so, oh, my fault. My bad. It's my alarm going off. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, what, what kind of times would you have to get over a 15 meter to, you know, ballpark to, to be an elite level bobsledder? You know, it was a long time ago. I'm trying to remember. It was like, it was under, it was like 3.8 or 9, if I remember correctly. This is a flying. See, the flying is just as important because uh, they're trying to see at top, like maximal top end speed, how you're able to maintain that top speed. And so that was just as important. And so uh, I wasn't as good at the flying as I was, like just, you know, more of a, you know, from more of a standstill. Yeah. So I can't, but I, can't, I really can't remember the times. Yeah. No. But, do, you, do you think you know, that's in part to your kind of your limb lengths? Because obviously, sometimes what makes you a really, yeah. really good squat doesn't necessarily make you a good top end sprinter. Absolutely, yeah. You know, like you know, I have short femurs, which makes me very, you know, really good for like you know the first ten to fifteen meters. But you know, it's hard to maintain that top end speed where other people just you know it's just stride length. No matter what I do, I'm never going to have the stride length as somebody else. And so, yeah, definitely, that was definitely. You know, draw that, but I still think you know I would have been fine just because um, I had so many other you know uh, advantages, which is way more explosive. You know, my my vertical leap is going to be higher than you know anybody's, and so. What, but, what um, was your best vertical jump? I've done a forty-inch vertical leap, and so you know, at five foot seven, you know, I was able to, like we talked about before the show, but you know, I was able to dunk, and so you know. That's pretty like good. NFL numbers, forty inch. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, the highest in the NFL is forty two. Yeah. And so that was that was by that's a, the wide receiver. Oh gosh, was the little short receiver that everybody that used to play for the Panthers. Um, I can't remember, but 
that's gonna be terrible because he's really good. I think but anyway, it's it, but By- Byron Jones got close. Was it last year, what? two years ago? The, the oh, guy that broke uh, the uh, the broad jump. Oh well, he might have broken. Um, sorry, I'm really Steve Smith was the guy who used to have it. Okay. Yeah, but like it might be, you know, that was a long time ago. So maybe you know, Byron Jones beat him probably, but I, I want to say he got 44. But oh, I, yeah, um, I, mean, I I spoke to a nutritionist who worked at the center where he did his um, his combine prep, and she said that uh, one day at lunch, just mucking around with the guys, he walked up behind somebody eating their lunch and jumped over the chair. <laughs> so I, I could believe it. <laughs> you know, I know that high, I mean the highest I've ever ever heard of is Spud Webb. Do you have you ever heard of the athlete Spud Webb? He was five foot seven and he won the NBA, NBA dunk competition at five foot. You need to. Google him when you're done with me, but that dude, you know, I mean, rumors are, I've heard anywhere between 46 and 52, but if you see him jump, you'll see, it's, um, you just gotta watch him, it doesn't even look real, like, like, I mean, I could dunk, but he could, he won the NBA dunk contest, I mean, he, five or seven, he was doing 360s, he was doing, you know, it was just crazy what he could do, so. Is it right as well that Shane Hammond could do a backflip from standing, and he weighed like 350? And he could dunk. He was only, I mean, at best, he was five foot nine, you know, um, at best. And so you're still talking about a, a five foot nine, three, 350, 60 pound dude that can, he can dunk too, which is crazy. <laughs> Think about the force he's able to produce. It's crazy. Man, that's so. um, yeah. So the other thing that I saw you put out there around that time was, as you were going back into Olympic lifting, you'd obviously had those experiences of using conjugate method, stuff that right. Simmons talks about, and you applied that to Olympic lifting. And then that actually, right. it got a lot of people's panties in a bunch. They said, no, this is never going to work. And some people said, well, it might work. How did it work? Um, I learned a lot. Like, you know, I definitely still use, you know, some of the methods with my athletes now. And, um, you know, our team is arguably the best in America, so it's pretty good. But um, we, we don't really use it for the fullest like I did. You know, we mainly use it for, like, pulls, or we still use it for squats. But, um, yeah, we don't really use um, the bands and chains for, you know, the fullest just because of risk of injury plus um, you can change the bar path. And so, you know, there's a, you know, I mean, for me, here's the thing, is that some people – you know, are not like super, like there's some really good weightlifters who aren't, in my opinion, true great athletes, meaning that they cannot switch back and forth from like a bar path. So if their bar path is changed at all because of a, a chain, it'll mess up their bar path when you take it off. I, I mean, with me, like I'm able to, you know, I'm so athletic. I mean, I'm, how do I say that? And not be, be, um, be humble. You can <laughs> Some athletes can just, you know, are just have really good kinesthetic awareness, so they just know where they need to be around the bar, and so, and some aren't. So just overall, it's not worth it when you're working with, you know, several athletes. But doing a pull and learning to, you know, I think the combination resistance is awesome because it's teaching you to fire, you know, more fibers at that second pull, which is, you know, the second pull is like, you know, once it crosses the knee, and you know, when you're finishing big at the top, so. Uh, However, some of the strength coaches in America would argue and say, you know, the chains slow you down. And they do while the chains are on, but they're not taking into consideration what happens when you take them off, you know. Mm. 
like it's getting heavy. It's accommodating the resistance. So yeah, it's getting heavier as you stand up when you're at your strongest point. So it's teaching you to fight even faster. But you know, argued all day. I guess the proof goes into the pudding. Like you know, my athletes are being yours. So maybe you can learn something from me. I don't know. You know. That's you know definitely my philosophy as a coach. Right, I try to have this philosophy is regardless of argument. If, if your guys beat my guys consistently, I'm going to try and steal the yeah. stuff. And if they don't, I don't care about your argument. <laughs> I, I, you know, man, I mean, uh, you know, there's two points to that. But, like, you know, I've got from my youth, I've got, you know, a 12-year-old who's, in my opinion, will be one of the future medalists in America, In so which is a big statement. But um, my juniors, my seniors, they're all super good. And so, you know, we have – we had four people on the junior Pan Am team. We have three on the junior world coming up in, in eight weeks. So, I mean, you know, we're definitely doing something right. We got senior senior people on the international teams. We have three three of our team members are on the senior international team. So, I mean, you know, for a brand new team in America, like definitely they should definitely consider maybe learning some new things. There's a lot in America that needs to change, but – you know, I guess hopefully my goal is this: is if our athletes start actually meddling in in the the world and Olympic events, maybe people will start to change some minds. I don't know. And going back to that accommodating resistance and, and Westside and all that kind of stuff, was that how you trained for the majority of your powerlifting career? Or were there different phases throughout your lifting career that changed how you trained? You know, I definitely would consider, you know, most of my career was done, you know, with um, a lot of West Side, you know, techniques and variations. But um, I definitely would, looking back, and the honestly, what I did was <laughs> more of a Bulgarian method. I just, I literally went heavy every day, you know. Like, um, I would use bands and chains, and I would do, you know, the prescribed, you know, percentages that Louis Simmons would prescribe, but I would always continue to go up and max out every 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 single day. I don't think I actually ever did a true you know dynamic day. Um, so it definitely used the conjugate method, meaning change, like use the variations he talked about. But other than that, I didn't definitely didn't do the dynamic you know day ever. I don't think. So. And you know, people make a lot of arguments about why that doesn't apply to a sport like powerlifting, where there are no limits on the time you have to apply force. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I know some people would say that the uh, that the speed the speed element. You know, some people say it's really good because you know the the amount of you know speed would equal you know a max effort. And you're learning to push fast, and and uh, I just I just disagree, you know. Like, um, you know, I just I just I mean, as an athlete, you know, we know our bodies really well, and so you know, I don't really have any research to back this up, but I do know this: that the greatest powerlifters, even from West Side, didn't really do the dynamic effort. Chuck Vogelpool didn't do the he didn't even know. You ask him about it, he's like, I don't even know what you're talking about, you know. And so, and now I know um, Dave Hoff, for example, he doesn't do it either. And so, um, so I just, I just don't think that, you know, any great athlete just 
can feel that nothing's really happening. You know, like yeah. if I want to do if I want to do true speed, I'll drop all weights and do you know plyometric work. You know, yeah. So that's that's even faster. Yeah, and you know when I went to Westside and I kind of spoke to him about speed work and he basically just said, well, you know, it's, it's 24 reps of technique work. He said, I know the technique's going to be perfect. And then that's, I think that's what you're probably getting from that. I guess, but like, you know, like how much technique do you really need in powerlifting? Yeah. That's another thing Like people, you know, people, you know, talk about technique, you know, in powerlifting, um, more to sell their seminars, I think. So like, um, I mean, it's squatting. It's like, I mean, yeah, there are some things I can teach, but it's squatting. Like you squat every day to, to sit on the toilet, man. I mean, like, you know, it's just, don't overthink it. I mean, people, I mean, I've talked to so many people lately and like, um, man, I, it's almost funny. Like if you ask any great powerlifter what they do when they squat, they're going to say, I just squat. You know what I mean? Like, like Ad Cohen is going to be like, you know, I'm gonna set up tight and sit down and come up, yeah. come up. You know, but like, um, you know, how much technique do you need to bench press? You're laying down and taking the bar to your chest and pushing it up. I mean, there's definitely some technique involved, but like, I could teach that technique. I feel like in 30 minutes, if I was one on one, you know. So, I mean, do you really need to practice technique in those movements? Deadlifting, it's just you pick it up. I mean, like. I tell you this: if you overcomplicate those movements, you're doing the your athletes or your you know clients a disservice because you're gonna make them think way too much. You know, definitely over time, you know, talk technique. Make sure on the deadlift that they, you know that I think that they set their back tight, uh, keep their arms long, but at the end, of the, you know, make sure their shoulders and their um, hips rise at the same time. But don't overcomplicate it. Don't talk about you know, digging, you know, the toes in the ground. I mean, come on. I mean, and I, I, mean I think the biggest reason I beat so many people in powerlifting is because I did not overcomplicate it. So many powerlifters, like, would, would beat themselves because they thought way too much, you know. Yeah. So. So that when you broke the world record, was that something that had been, you know, on the cards for years or years yeah it was apparent to you the moment you got into powerlifting that you had the potential to to break the world record you know i said uh early on even that you know i did that one year of powerlifting um you know when i was still in college like i said it then that I, I thought i could beat that record someday and that was crazy because i wasn't even close i was only totally around 17 1800 then and so it was like literally it was six or seven hundred pounds away but um yeah, I believe if I stay in the sport, I can beat it. You know, um, you know, I never looked at limits. I guess when I was young, and so as you get older, you start to have, you know, somehow, unfortunately, we start to think about limits, which you shouldn't. But um, I just thought, yeah, you know, if I if I can increase my total, you know, you know, sixty to one hundred pounds, or 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 thirty kilos to to forty five kilos every single training cycle, that you know, eventually I beat it. So um, when I came back to the sport. You know, it's what it's what happened. It took me about four years when I came back to finally, you know, beat beat the record. And so I feel like I could have kept going, but you know, once again, you know, with me, here's my problem: is I get super bored as an athlete. And so, like, you know, once I beat that record, instead of just trying to like come back and beat my own, beat my own, like that's when I flip 
try to flip the script and go back to weightlifting and bobsled. And so now all I do is I do once a year I do a super total meet. And now I really enjoy that. So yeah. that's that's kind of I dig that doing both sports. What, so. What's involved in the super total? Well, last year the one I did is snatch, clean and jerk, um, squat, strict press, standing strict press, and deadlift. So I would like to do one that's just straight, you know, snatch, clean and jerk, squat, bench, and deadlift. But uh, maybe this year I'll do that. And so we'll see. How how close are you to those powerlifting numbers? You know, obviously unequipped that you were when you broke the world record. Um, quite a bit, you know. I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't get to trade quite as hard as I used to, but. So last year I snatched um, 297, I cleaned and jerked um, 166 kilos, it was 365, and um, then I squatted 650, uh, bench 400, uh, strict press 255, and deadlifted 700. So it was pretty, you know, it was a ways off, but I mean, I'm 43 now, and I just don't, I don't train as hard, but. I like just being, you know, here's the thing. Like, if I was as good at powerlifting as I used to be, I think it would be really hard to be as good at weightlifting. But because, you know, you just – to bench, like, 500-plus raw, I just don't think you would have the shoulder mobility or thoracic spine mobility to be able to snatch. But So it's a good across the board. You know, pretty strong, athletic. That's what I'm about. So what were your best, like, raw numbers when you were powerlifting? I mean, I would consistently go, you know, in the 800s raw. You know, I'd go up to 805, and then I'd put on gear. Um, I've, I've benched 550, you know, and I'm, the, the 804 deadlift was raw anyway. So um, it was not even in. It's, I should have just went raw because, you know, when I would go to the WPO meets, um, which was the pro housing back then, I would use the equipment, and I never did as good. And it, you know, I was a dumb young athlete, and so I never thought that maybe I should just take the equipment off. But um, it, I think it would mess my positions up, you know, and so, but, so that, that was it. So about 804, 804, you know, 550. But, so, you know, once again. Crazy numbers. I was, <laughs> pretty good, you know, I think, I would like to have done, you know, I would like, I wish I could have trained completely wrong just to see what I could do, but, um, you know, should have, could have, didn't, so. And, you know, I've spoken to some other guys and talk about, well, you know, for example, to go from 100 kilos to 150 kilos, you know, they can train a certain way. To go from 150 to 175, you have to train a certain way. Were there yeah. lessons that you learned along the course of those four years to break the world record? What What were the, you know, some things that you had to pull out of your back pocket to, to make that total continue to go up? <sighs> You know, the, definitely the variations, I think, you know, like um, every time that, you know, I would, uh, you know, which I didn't ever come to long plateaus, but when I came to a plateau, I would just continually flip the script and change up and it would keep me going. Um, I know like with deadlifting, it's curious because it's, it's like deadlifting can really stagnate for some reason. And so what you have to do is pretend, this is coming from with Jim Windler, but it's pretend that there's a field of rocks and under one of those rocks is a million dollars. You got to keep turning over rocks until you find that, you know, the money. And so, um, I kept trying new things and, you know, every time that it would stagnate, I would keep switching until something else helped it go on up. You know, like, um, for example, the first time I went, I was in the low 700s, I felt stuck for a long time, like 722, 733. And like, uh, couldn't quite get past that. And so, uh, 
a friend of mine, Ed, you know, Ed Cohen, obviously the dude who I broke his record, talked about doing um, like slightly elevated RDLs. I'm gonna say slightly like two, maybe four inches at most, using bands. And uh, so I would, you know, I'd go up to 400 or 455 with um, a really strong green band doubled underneath the um, the actual deficit board I was using. And I did that for, you know, maybe eight weeks, just that. And um, then I just did some, you know, I would do work up to, you know, I'd do the dynamic effort deadlifts. But I'd, like I said, I'd always work up to 85 or 90%. But I didn't go really heavy. You know, I didn't go like, I didn't try max effort from the floor. But that eight weeks ended in a, in a competition. And that's the first time I hit 800 pounds. So it was literally like 66 pound increase. And so, um, yeah, so so that was an example of how I continued to increase. This is always I never stayed the same. Everything was always changing. You know, the the moment I felt the plateau coming, I would start trying new things until something worked. And so, you know, I don't think anyone should ever plateau. I don't think I have an athlete that works under me now, even in weightlifting, because most people would say, "Well, weightlifting is going to happen." I mean, I just if you think that it might, but I mean, if I see one of my athletes plateauing, then we're going to switch stuff up, man. We're not going to continue to do the same, you know, stuff. And so we never, you know, a lot of weightlifting coaches, especially, they have this system they they have developed from years ago, and they're going to do that system come hell or high water, which makes no sense. And if your system is plateauing your athlete, maybe look at someone else's. I mean, I mean, it just makes no sense, you know, to do the same thing over and over and expect change is insanity, you know. And so, uh, um, I think that's what kept me from never plateauing. I don't know. And you've mentioned your athletes there. How how big a change are we talking about in the exercises? Because obviously you've already alluded to how technical the lifts can be, and you you maybe don't get as much opportunity to to change things as you do with the power lifts because they're less technical. Is it literally you know maybe you go from the hang to blocks to the floor? Just is it just small variations like that? You know that's where being a really good coach comes into play, and like. Um, Let's take two athletes. I have, um, you know, Nathan Damron and I have Tom Suma. They're two really good junior lifters. You know, both of them are super good in the in the snatch and clean jerk. However, Nathan has amazing um, absolute strength, and Tom is what's called an efficient lifter for meaning he will front squat or he will clean jerk ninety percent of his best front squat, which is pretty high. Nathan will clean, will clean and jerk, you know, 60, maybe it's like 67% of his best front squat. And so, you you know, like, so like what I would do with Tom, if he ever comes close to, you know, um, stagnating, is focused on absolute strength, you know, only. You know, with, with Nathan, then if he starts to stagnate, maybe we'll focus on, you know, technique or maybe we'll, you know, stop, you know, squatting as much and we'll really – emphasize you know dialing in efficiency on the lift and so it just depends on the you know on the lifter you gotta you gotta know you know uh, what their strengths and what their weaknesses are and target it you know like uh, another example like you know Nathan is is pulling strength is not near as good as Tom's so it's quite it's just squatting is better so Nathan maybe we will work on more pulls which we have and it's really helped and so you just got to know them, and you cannot just have a one-size-fits-all system and thinks that works. And it seems very common. And, you know, people 
in weightlifting, coaches in weightlifting, make fun of Louis Simmons all the time. He wrote a book, which I'm, I have. He just sent me the copy of it. So, and they'll make fun of it before they even read it because they'll say, "Oh, he doesn't know," which is what makes them weak. I mean, that is why my team will always beat theirs, is because they're never looking for any kind of new knowledge. You know, they're okay with mediocrity. Like they're okay with the fact that we, we don't win medals. Well, I tell you what, I'm not okay. You know, I, I like to win. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm going to try to win. And if I'm doing Olympic weightlifting, if I'm coaching that, I can promise you my goal is to win the Olympics. It is not to make it. And so, like, if, you know, Louis Simmons writes a book, I'm going to read it. And I'm going to use my brain and my knowledge as a strength coach to decipher through what works and what doesn't work. And so uh, if I can learn something new, I'm going to. And yeah. I'm going to apply it to my athletes. So, so you mentioned Louis. Who are some some other influences or that have been big influences on on you as coaches? Um, you know, Don McCauley, who's now you know he's coaches for my team now, but uh, he was my mentor as far as technique goes. Uh, he's the man. Like, there's no better technician, you know, in my opinion. And which you know, and once again, is debatable because a lot of people debate technique in America. I think they spend too much time debating that because uh, they need to worry about getting strong, but. Um, Definitely Don McCauley, you know, um, Louis Simmons, uh, you know, Chris Wilkes is another guy who coaches, you know, on, on my team, and he, uh, he's brilliant uh, as well, you know. And then I really – I feel like I've learned a lot of my things from just great strength and conditioning coaches, you know, Mark Watts for Elite FTS. Um, also been on the podcast. <laughs> oh, has he really? He oh, is, yeah. He's yeah, the guy he's, that holds the record. Yeah, three questions and he favorite. spoke for an hour. <laughs> well, he's the man, dude. I think yeah. if you want a guy with information, go to him, and it's information that can be applied to any uh, field of strength or strength conditioning. He's amazing. So he's definitely a big influence. So those are Chad Wesley Smith. Um, you know, definitely he's young. Here's another example. He's younger than me. A lot of strength coaches would feel, well, you know, that guy can't teach me anything, but I'm not. See, man, I'm not that uh, arrogant. If I can learn something from a seven-year-old, I will learn it. You know, like I'm, I'm putting my pride aside. I'm trying to be the best, you know, strength coach in the world. I'm not trying to be the most, you know, prideful. So, yeah, and I mean, there's a lot you can learn from people. And anyone who squats nine something in knee reps is probably uh, worth listening to. Absolutely, Chad Smith is is. A, He's brilliant in more than one way, you know, like he taught me a lot, you know, as far as coaching plus business. Um, yeah, so I try to learn from everybody, you know. So you've obviously got a lot of young athletes at the Barbell Club. Um, you already mentioned that you've got a huge amount of success in a short space of time. Yeah. Imagine I'm a young athlete coming to your club. What's the process to, to make a young athlete that good that soon? Well, number one, you know, you, you got to be able to identify them, you know, as having the potential. You know, I will coach anybody, so like I wouldn't turn anyone around. But to to um, get getting them, you know, as successful as some of my athletes, there's certain things that you know they need to have been, you know, born with and gifted. Like, you know, they need to be naturally pretty explosive. So you know, vertical leap is something you're going to test. Um, having natural um, mobility. Is super important, you know. And are they able to, 
No, uh, I think the big tester there would be: can they do a, a really good? If they can do a great overhead squat, meaning their you know spine is pretty vertical, um, they can sit um, you know the, their hamstrings on their calves. If they can do that; they can be pretty good. And then you know, limb lengths are pretty important. You know, are the femurs? You know, if they have short femurs, that's a really good thing. You know, is their you know is their femur length equal to their you know tibia length? Uh, do they have long arms or short arms? You know, long torso, short torso. You need to, you know, identify those things. But you know, any athlete can be good in weightlifting. But when you're talking about the top end, there's certain things that you really need to have. And so, to be an, you know, to be an Olympian. Yeah. So, which is, I'm after that. So. Do you think you've got any that could could make that level? Absolutely. I mean, no. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the 12 year old I'm coaching right now could. There's a 16-year-old Matt Weiniger that could. There's Nathan Damron, and I think Nathan, Tom, and Suma, and Dylan Cooper, all three could and will, in my opinion. You know, Kane Wilkes, a guy on my team. I don't really coach Kane. I can't take credit. His dad, Chris Wilkes, who's one of our coaches, has always coached him, and there's a good chance he'll get the. Well, America's only going to get one spot this year, and so um, I think. Kane has got a really good chance of being that one spot, so um, so hopefully this year our team will send one. And um, but I I believe the next the next quad the next Olympics is where America has a breakout because we've got our junior lifters going go head to head like at the uh, Pan American Games we won twenty nine medals and so there's a there's a new era coming but it won't be until the next quad. So. Okay. And, um... In terms of technical development and, and physical development, what is your philosophy in terms of that youth development? Are you are you going as heavy as possible, as early as possible, or are you going to try and slow cook them? Because you know, I see is it like, you know twelve, thirteen year olds maxing out with with perfect technique, and that isn't something that you would you would normally see. Yeah, like it all is judged by that. It's like you know, if their movement patterns can t- stay the same when they go heavy, then I wouldn't max them out all the time. But I definitely test them. Like um, you know, Morgan Mc- McCullough is my twelve-year-old. I keep talking about, and you know, we definitely go heavy sometimes with him. But he's got good technique, you know, and so uh, you know, we're still perfecting it. And so he's still got a little ways to go. But you know, if you saw him lift, you would assume he's like you know been doing it for. 10 years and he's really good and so we still test it you know because um just i mean like guys like cj cummings have been going heavy since before that and so you you gotta you gotta keep up my goal is to start beating the standards that like guys like cj and harrison morris have set already so we we still you do have to go heavy because if not you, you'll find yourself at 16 years old being behind that's how quick the sport moves yeah so um but it's, do it safely, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, I think I've seen a video of a, there's an eight-year-old kid in China with yeah. almost perfect technique, and he's, he's thrown around like one and a half times body weight and stuff, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, and so you need to, yeah. So, it, it, you know, the whole thing about hurting kids is like, what really matters is like, is like movement. If their movement patterns are correct, then let them go. You know, like, think about this. You know, you get a kid who... It's on top of a on top of a fence and jumps down. But there's more force absorbed there than there ever will be in lifting weights. Yeah. So I don't know what, how that ever came about. 
think about when you climbed a tree and jumped down out of the tree. How much force was you know, absorbed by the body there? A lot more than you, you take distance divided by time. You know, that's a, it's a lot more from jumping out of a tree than lifting weights, you know? And a lot less control in the environment. <laughs> Absolutely. Jumping on, you know, ground surface that's, you know, unequal. And yeah. So I don't know if people get crazy as far as. So somehow when they talk about weightlifting, you know, every common sense thing they've ever thought goes out the window and they just, you know, their, their vision goes tunnel. And so, but they don't stop to think, wait, you know, my kid, I can go to gymnastics and that's cool, but I can't do weightlifting. Well, I tell you, <laughs> gymnastics is a lot more force being absorbed there than you ever will with weightlifting. You know, like uh, the the weight, the sheer amount of weight that you're lifting slows things down to the point where you know, there's not as much force. You know. Yeah. So. so when you when you transition, you know, an athlete through puberty and and as they become an adult athlete, you, you've mentioned the Bulgarian system or that kind of style of training that worked well for you. Is that what you're looking to push your your more senior athletes towards? I would say more. Of, um, I would like to say I model my things. You know, all right. So I would say I've learned a lot from the Chinese, but I would still say I, I use more, you know, you know, Amer here's the thing. We, we look at Chinese and Bulgarians and Russians as if they have the answer. But then you start to think, like, hold on. At the Olympics, America still dominates everybody overall. So we have some pretty darn good strength industry coaches here. So, like, why am I trying to learn from countries that overall we beat? You know, like you look at our swimming, track and field, throwing, you know, we dominate them. And so, like, I like to think that the strength conditioning and the exercise science that I've learned in America would, you know, that's what I need to be using and applying to my athletes. So, you know, I use some of the things I've learned from the Chinese, I would say, meaning that, um, you know, we, we, we use accessory movements to, um, you know, target weaknesses. And then, um, yeah, we do go heavy at least once a week. You know, we do our infamous um, Max Out Friday. So every Friday is going to be more of a competition setting. Uh, we have a lot of fun. Uh, we don't coach as much on that day because, you know, we try to use it as a competition. You know, at a competition, you shouldn't be overcoaching. That's the wrong time. You need to let the athlete focus on getting mentally prepared to go heavy. And so um, – you know, we do that, and so that is. So I wouldn't say we're completely Bulgarian or completely Chinese or completely anything. I think we just use good, solid strength conditioning theories and uh, principles and apply them overall. So we still use. You know, we have you know times of the year where we really focus on you know hypertrophy, you know, or you know general strength. So that is definitely not Bulgarian in method. That is totally what I've learned as a exercise scientists in America or anywhere else or, you know, you're in Tokyo, right? Yeah. Is that where you are? Yeah, yeah. Why, why, why are you in Tokyo? Let me Money, baby. <laughs> oh, are you yeah. still, are you still a rugby player? No, no, I'm a coach. I'm a strength and conditioning coach. coach. So I did, um, I did three years in England. I moved to Australia. I did a little bit there, uh, in national rugby league. Then I did three years in Argentina and we just finished mm. at the world cup and, um, they decided I was too expensive, and then uh, there was a club in Tokyo that wanted to pay for it. So here I am for two years. That's so cool. So, <laughs> so you, you like Tokyo? It is crazy different. You know, I I arrived 
just over a month ago, but it's, you know, I like to think that England and Australia are kind of in the middle. And then you go to a Latin country like Argentina, where the the interaction between people is a lot warmer and a lot more open and a lot less reserved. And then to go from that environment, that working environment, you know, in, in every game of the World Cup before the game, it was a room full of 40 guys, you know, tears rolling down their faces. And then you, you go from that environment to... Japan, which is like the other end of the spectrum. Like, you don't even shake hands, you bow. We had a game the other day where when the other team leaves, you have to bow individually to every one of them, and there was 45 guys. <laughs> so, it's yeah, crazy. Did you have to do it too? Yeah. You had yeah. to bow. <laughs> That's crazy. So, I was just curious. That's a, yeah, I, I would hopefully get to visit there someday soon. I hope. Anytime you want to come visit, you're welcome. (laughs) That would be cool. Where where are the Olympics in 2020? Aren't they there? They're in Tokyo, yeah. And uh, our World Cup's going to be there in 2019. So it's going to be a pretty good environment to be around, yeah. Um, You know, I'll be more excited for that one. I think Rio is good. I mean, it sounds really scary now. (laughs) So so I'll be glad when it's in Tokyo. I've got a friend who's... um, his his job is to like help companies set up the infrastructure around the Olympic Games. So he did London, he did Sochi, he did uh, Rio, and he said, "Yeah, Rio is it's it's interesting." <laughs> and I've heard, you know, I hope they're prepared, is what I'm saying. But you know, yeah, we'll see. I'll be I'll be happier when it's in Tokyo. Yeah. So you know, just winding up, a couple more questions for you. You've, you've released a, an ebook about squatting every day and you mentioned right. that online when you when you were coming up as a powerlifter you you squatted twice a week and that got you up to you know, right. a thousand pounds so what what right. prompted that transition to squatting every day and and what the, what were the results of that and your experiences of doing that so my friend Corey Gregory um, which you may or may not know he's the one who you know influenced me to try it Really, I just I like him, and so you know I'm at the age where I'll just experiment. Why not? And I really expected it not to work. You know, I went into it definitely with the wrong mentality. But um, but quickly after two weeks, I noticed like the movement itself, you know, feeling better, which is crazy, you know, because you know I've been squatting since I was you know 11 year old, 11 years old. So after 30 years of squatting, you would assume that the movement would get better. But if you watch. If you go to my Instagram and you look at um, the first day I did it versus like towards the end of it, I only did it for about six months, but um, I don't do it now. But I'm I'm going to like I just now started training hard again. And I basically had an off season, I guess you can call it. But but um, the movement pattern gets better and it gets more efficient. And I tell you, my hips felt better, my knees felt better because now I didn't do a true max every single day. You know, like um, I I think I went by biorhythms. You know, if I if I felt myself you know, feeling good and moving quickly, then I would work up. If I didn't, I would focus on pauses, you know, for lots of seconds. And so that would cut the intensity down itself. And so, um, but it was able to take my squatting, you know, at the time I was on probably just because I haven't been doing it that much. So it's, it's kind of false numbers. So I don't want to like give you the impression that it's going to create miracles, but definitely took me from the fives at the time back into the 650s while I was doing snatching and clean jerking and all the other movements. So, uh, 
I definitely know. I mean, I know at this point, if I wanted to, if I want to continue, I could get back into the sevens. I don't feel at my age that I could get into the eights again, but um, I definitely feeling squatting every day. I could definitely squat seven. The six fifty was easy. The day I did the, the super total, I went fourteen for fifteen. I only had one missed lift the whole day. So, wow. And um, yeah, where can where can people find that ebook? Um, you can go to masterelite.com and um, it's on there. Everything pretty much is on that website, but um, it's definitely definitely a good experience. I think it's, it's a lot to learn from the ebook too. Just you know, if there's anything that you want to do better at, as long as you wave it properly and as long as you use the, the conjugate method, meaning change up the variations. I think you can, you know, if you want to get better at any one thing, you know, you don't have to do it every day, but you could definitely do it more frequently. I think frequency is something that. Um, as a strength coaches, you know, all you're thinking is sets and reps. But frequency is definitely a big, um, you know, it's something that needs to be talked about more. Just like, think about this is like, if you played rugby, you know, how often did you practice to get better at rugby? Probably quite often or every day. Six um, days a week. In, right. In America, you know, we wanted, to, like, when I played basketball as a young guy, like, I wanted to get better at that. I practiced every single day, you know, and so. Um, if you want to get better at a movement or become more efficient or get the CNS more prime for it, consider practicing more often. You know? Awesome. So that, that, that's what I learned. Yeah. Cool. And um, that website is where people can find you in general, right? Yeah. You know, masterleague.com is pretty much everything. And then, you know, my Instagram is, you know, you know, does pretty, gets pretty many hits, but it's just, um, you know, masterleague performance is on my Instagram. So, those two places are where you find me the most. Cool. Thanks very much for that, Travis. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks for having me on, man. Thank you, mate.